hearts as we are uh, celebrating Jesus this morning. Uh, if you want to grab your Bibles or follow with me on the screen behind, uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 16 today. Mark chapter 16. And while you're turning there, we just again want to encourage you uh, to get connected. If you're looking for a church, as John said earlier, we, we would love to connect with you, figure out how we could be a blessing in your life. You could do that after service uh, with the hospitality team or fill out that connect card. That'd be a great way to get connected. Mark chapter 16, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. 1 through 8. Hear the reading of God's word. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very, er very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where, he, where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, the way of resurrection. The way of resurrection. Let's pray before we begin. Lord Jesus, as we come to your text today, we are asking that you would resurrect our hearts, just as we sing. You are the resurrected King who is resurrecting us. And so, Lord, Bring us out of our, our despair. Bring us out of our sin. Bring us out of our confusion. Bring us out of our defeat. Whatever it is, Lord, resurrect us today by the power of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Nelson Mandela was the David who took on the Goliath of South African apartheid. He and the national or the African National Congress had been organizing uh, various campaigns and demonstrations and nonviolent uh, protests to draw attention to the injustice of apartheid. And they were gathering together the black community in South Africa. They were organizing people around this campaign. And, and because of that, he kind of became the, the face of the resistance movement. Right? And, and because of that, being the face of the movement, he was eventually arrested and he was charged with terrorism. And famously, in April of 1964, he was on trial in the courtroom of a crowded courtroom in Johannesburg where he gave a speech. And this speech was not a short one. It was a three-hour speech. And I'm not going to quote the whole three-hour speech to you, but... I want to quote the last part of the speech, these final lines, because in this speech, he inspired his nation, but also the world that transformed many different things. And this is what he said in his closing remarks. He said, during my lifetime, I have dedicated myself to this struggle of the African people. I have fought against white domination and I have fought against black domination. 
I have cherished the ideal of a democratic and free society in which all persons live together in harmony and with equal opportunities. It is an ideal which I hope to live for and to achieve. But if needs be, it is an ideal for which I am prepared to die. And that became the title of this speech that it's rem remembered by, I am prepared to die. It was words that changed the whole world, not just his own country, but changed the world. Right? There's many words that have changed the world throughout history. You might think of Ronald Reagan as he spoke those famous words about the Berlin Wall during the Cold War, the wall that separated East Germany from West Germany, and he said famously, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. Right? Or you might think of Dr. King's famous speech at the March on Washington, that critical moment in the civil rights movement where he stood up and he famously proclaimed, I have a dream. Or you might think of Neil Armstrong, who for the first time in human history walked on zero gravity. And he famously said, that's one small step for a man, but one giant leap for mankind. Right? These are words that transformed the world. Words that changed the way things once were and now are. Right? Things are not going to be the same. And so now when we come to this text, we're seeing something that's very similar, but even greater. Right? I mean, in this text, we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark, if you're just joining with us, and we're coming now to the end. This is the end of, of, of uh, Mark's Gospel. And Mark's Gospel has been telling the story of Jesus' life. And as you come to the end, you start to see that Mark has some distinctives about his Gospel. In fact, uh, what we learn right away is that Mark's Gospel has a different ending. And we're going to talk about that at the end. We're going to look at why he has a different ending. But first, we have to look at kind of what, what distinguishes Mark as a writer. One of the things that distinguishes him is that he's the earliest gospel writer. Mark is the earliest account that we have of Jesus' resurrection. Think about this. These words, these eight verses in the Bible, it's 135 words in the Greek text. These words transformed the entire world. Right here, these words. Life would never be the same. But why? How has Jesus' resurrection, how have these words transformed all that we know? First, we need to look at the surprise of life. And so if you're taking notes today, we're going to look briefly at this question. And the first thing I want to look at is the surprise of life. Look at verse 1 with me. It says this, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Pause right there for a second. It's been three days, right? Jesus was crucified on Friday, and, and that, it was the worst day they could ever imagine. I mean, here they are, these women, they're watching Jesus be beaten, crucified, dead and buried, all uh, you know, against their expectations, their hopes, their dreams, their loved one that they love so much in Jesus. Here they are watching him die right in front of them. It's the worst day you could imagine. And then you have Sabbath on Saturday, and now it's Sunday morning, early on Sunday morning, and they get up early to go visit the tomb. And when they go visit the tomb, you can tell that they're not expecting resurrection. They're not expecting life. Mark tells us that they went and they bought spices. 
And these spices were meant to be uh, mixed with oil, and you would take this mixture and you would put it on the dead body to not only anoint the body, kind of a, a religious ceremony, but also because it lessened the smell of decay. Right? So it was, it was just kind of a, a taking care of the body and, and a compassionate act. And so here they are going towards the tomb with these spices. And not only that, they're having a conversation about the tomb. They're, they're asking themselves, how are we going to roll away this stone that's blocking the entrance to the tomb? Which means that they didn't expect this tomb to be open. They didn't expect to find life. They expected death. They expected that this would be a failed attempt. All they expected was death and despair. But then they arrive at the tomb, and look at what happens in verse 4. In verse 4 it says, And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. Mark, Mark points that out. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed alarmed. This is unexpected, right? They're headed to the tomb after the worst weekend they could ever imagine. They're grieving, they're sad, they're exhausted, they're expecting death and despair, and all of a sudden, the stone is rolled away. How did this happen? So now they're curious, they're wondering what, what could be going on. They enter into the tomb, and when they enter into the tomb, they find a young man seated in the tomb, dressed in white robes. Now, the other Gospels are a little bit more explicit and tell us that it's an angel. Mark is kind of leaving it for your imagination. He's just kind of painting the picture for you of what they saw and, and how this worked. And so they see this angel, and now their mind is exploding. They're trying to figure out what is going on. I mean, Mark just says they're alarmed, they're surprised, they, they don't know what to do with this information because what they had expected was death. What they had expected was despair. Because, see, life, it seems, life seems surprising when death feels final. When death feels final, a sense of life seems surprising. Let me tell you this way. The highest grossing film director in Hollywood history is Steven Spielberg. I mean, almost, get this, almost $11 billion in ticket sales. $11 billion in ticket sales. I mean, he became famous for telling stories that people love to watch, right? Steven Spielberg, for decades, has been creating famous blockbuster films like Jaws and Jurassic Park and The Color Purple and all these, all these incredible films. But what's happened in his career is he's also been known for not being able to win very many Oscars. You may be familiar with this, that it, it, they call it his Oscar curse. In fact, it took him 20 years to win an Oscar. 20 years after blockbuster films that, that had been nominated, but none of them won an Oscar. Until, get this, he's won two Oscars. These are the two Oscars he's won for. Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan. One movie about the Holocaust, another movie about World War II. And so critics are asking, why can he not win an Oscar? And here's the reason why he can't win an Oscar, they've told him, is because of happy endings. See, people love to watch happy endings. That's why they sell tickets. That's why everyone loves his movies. That's why they want to be entertained by his incredible stories. But when it comes down to defining what art is, the critics say 
That's not art. That's not art. Why? Because in our culture, happy endings isn't considered good art. Listen to me. In a secular culture, in a, in a godless culture, death feels final. Death feels final. Cynicism feels real. Cynicism is, what, is something you can grasp. It's something you can experience. It's something that is tangible because you can point to your experience and you can say, look, that's what's happening. And so hope, this sense of joy and hope in the midst of our circumstances, it feels fake. Hope feels like it's not real. Hope is something that you give to kids in Disney movies. But listen, the struggle with cynicism, the struggle with cynicism is the evidence of our experience. Because we have a whole pile of experience we can point towards. We can say, look, look at this struggle that I'm going through. Look, look at how those people at that church failed me. Or, or look at how this sickness took over my, my dad's life. Or, or look at how this, this marriage fell apart. Like We have so many things that we can say. We can say, we, look at this evidence right here. This is what's real in my life. And so cynicism is a struggle because we've got things to point to to say, what do I do with that? And it's easy to enter into the cycle of despair. And let's be honest, some of us are there right now. Some of us have, have entered into that cycle of despair where all we expect is death and despair. Maybe, I mean, I don't know what you're walking through right now. I don't know what, what has happened in your life, what, what difficulties have happened. But, but listen, this is how it works in my life and works in your life. Something happens that causes this traumatic experience, and now you enter into that place, and you can't get out. I mean, it, it may have been, you know, a, a long, painful marriage that came to an end, or it may have been, you know, your kids are in that season where they're just rebellious, and they're causing all kinds of problems and stress and difficulty, it might be that you lost a loved one that was unexpected and hurt deeply. All these things, right? There are so many things that can happen that enter you into that cycle of despair and you just can't seem to get out. But notice the surprise in the text. Notice the surprise. When this news of new life enters onto the scene, they're alarmed. They're alarmed. I mean, it goes against all of our expectations. When you're in that cycle of despair and all you expect is bad news and bad news and bad news, then the good news comes and you're like, I don't know what to do with this. It shakes you up. It, it shakes you out because there's something deep down inside of you that knows it's true, but it doesn't fit my experience. And yet we crave it. We love it. We long for it. It's hope. It's hope. It's hope that shakes us out of this despair. It's hope that wakes us up to joy. It's hope that breaks us out of cynicism because the human heart was made for hope. So the question in the text is, how, how do we move from uh, trusting, or how do, how do we trust in this hope of life in the face of death and despair? Now we've got to look at the reality. Look at this. The second part is the reality of life. Look at verse 6. It goes on to say this, and he, the angel, said to them, do not be alarmed. Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, 
just as he told you. I love this because the angel, he tells them, don't be alarmed. I know this doesn't fit your expectations. I know the narrative you've been given and the narrative you're living is that it's only death and death and death. But listen, I'm telling you the truth. Jesus is alive. And if you want to see it for yourself, and the angel points over here, you know where he was laid. I mean, these women were there just on Friday, and they saw them lay Jesus' body right there in the tomb. He points to the tomb. He says, that's where his body was. See it for yourself. Right? And so the angel is saying, I know this doesn't fit what your narrative is. I know this isn't what you expected, but Jesus is alive. And this is, this is not a feeling, this is not a guess that he might be alive. He's saying, look, here is the proof he's not here. This was an undeniable reality of life. Now, we've got to pause there for a second because that's been debated, right? Scholars have debated this. Scholars have argued about the, the historical reliability of the resurrection. I want to pause for a second and just give you three things. There's three arguments that, that people mainly give. The first one is this. You ready? There's three of them. The first one is the reality of the empty tomb. The reality of the empty tomb. And what I mean by that is, if, if you think about it this way, the gospel was preached in the same city that Jesus was buried. They could have easily said, as people were preaching that Jesus is alive, they could have said, okay, we're going to go back and look at the tomb and show you his dead body, and we're going to prove everybody wrong. But they didn't. Nobody does that. Even the religious leaders who were against Jesus had to confess that the tomb was empty. And so early skeptics had to come up with some reason for that. They had to say, well, then maybe somebody stole it. Or maybe that someone framed it. You know, so some other explanation, but they couldn't say that there was a body. The body never turned up. It's a historical fact. There is no body. Second thing. Here's the second line. The testimony of numerous witnesses. The Apostle Paul will tell us later in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus showed up to 500 witnesses. 500 people saw the, the risen Jesus. Now think about this. If 500 people saw something, either it's a massive party and everyone's hallucinating. <laughs> Second thing, they're all lying. Or third thing, they really saw it. They really saw it. And think about particularly the witnesses that Mark gives here. Mark goes out of his way, these last two chapters, to name the women who were there to witness. Because he's trying to say, if you, if you doubt that this actually happened, you can go down to Mary's house and ask her. Or you can go down to Salome's house and you can ask her. Because these are people who are still living when Mark wrote the gospel. These are people who are actively there. Like they could go say, is this what you saw? And again, if, if you were trying to uh, make up a story, you would never use women in ancient Israel. Because here, in their culture, if, if women were testifying, it was not trustworthy testimony in the court of law. And so think about that. If you're going to make up a story... Why would you ever use women to be your witnesses, knowing that no one in the culture trusts their testimony? The only reasonable explanation for that is it actually happened. It actually happened that God chose women to be the first witnesses of the resurrection and the first people to go then tell the story of the resurrection because that's what he wanted to do. And it actually happened. 
they wouldn't have made it up. If you made it up, you would have made it Peter, or you would have made it John, or somebody else, someone who was going to be famous that could get some credit for this. But no, it was the women who no one in the culture would have trusted. But it's true. It's true. And lastly, the life transformation of Jesus' followers. I mean, what could possibly cause people, these men and women who are going to follow Jesus, to give up their life for a lie? Think about that. I mean, who, who at that point would, sit, would just turn around and say, or, or wouldn't turn around and say, you know what, this was all a lie, it was a hoax, we're, we're just trying to get attention, uh, I don't want to die. I mean, hundreds of people died for their faith because they believed that Jesus really did rise from the dead. Here you go. I mean, you, you, you've got to deal with these questions. How do we answer these questions? The only explanation that makes rational sense is Jesus was alive and it radically changed their life. As the angel told the women, he's alive just as he told you. Right? What he's saying to them is this, this isn't a feeling, this is a fact, this is a reliable fact. And so the resurrection is reliable hope. It's reliable hope. It's hope not based on feelings, right? Because hope based on feelings will fail us. Right? If, you, if you put your faith, if you put your hope in, in a feeling, it's not going to last. If you put your hope in a feeling that your boyfriend or your girlfriend is going to give you, then it's going to fail you. If you put your hope in the approval of your boss, it's going to fail you. If you put your hope in the success of your children, it's going to fail you. If you put your hope in the success of your business, it's going to fail you, right? Anything else, it's going to fail you because these things don't last. They change, right? And so if Jesus' resurrection is based on a feeling, like I feel like he might be alive, I feel like this might be true, then it's not going to be worth anything. But if it's historical fact, if it's not a feeling, it's a fact, it changes everything. It means your hope is not based on what you feel, but what God did. What God did. See, Jesus' resurrection is God giving his full and final approval of all that Jesus came to do. Right, Jesus took our place, living the perfect life that we were called to live. Jesus took our place, dying the death that we deserve to die. Jesus took our place, not only in his death, but in his resurrection. Right, Jesus is taking our place as our representative, our person who's being our substitute. He's saying, I came to do all of that for you, and the resurrection is Jesus' final approval. Right? He entered into the grave with all our guilt on, our on his shoulders. He entered into the grave with all of our shame on him. But early that Sunday morning, he got up. Yeah. He got up not with our guilt, but with our victory. Yeah. He got up with all power in his hands, power over our past, power over our present, power over our future. He has power. He got up yeah. because he told us. He told us. And so Jesus' resurrection means our resurrection is reliable. His death for us, but not just his death, his resurrection. It's his reliable promise that no matter what despair you feel, there's hope. It's his reliable promise that there's hope that God has fully paid for your sin. 
There's hope that God has fully given you his righteousness. There's hope that God hasn't forgotten you in your suffering. There's hope that God will come again to take away all your pain and wipe away every tear. There's hope that the resurrection is the first fruits of all he'll do. These are the facts. The facts. And so this reality of life in the face of death leaves us with one last question. And this is the last point I want to talk about. The question of life. The question of life. Look at verse 8. It closes this way. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. They were afraid. Now, most modern translations of the Bible have a little note right after that. And it says the earliest manuscripts do not contain verses 9 through 20. Now, we don't have the time to get into all of what that means, but here's, here's what that means in, in just a short time that we have. What that means is most scholars believe that the, the last part that you might see in your Bible was actually not in the original manuscripts written by Mark. And so the question is, how did that come about? What actually happened to bring that about? And, and it, it's an interesting question because what probably happened is scribes, a, a few centuries later after Mark was written, wrote down as they're copying the text, they wrote down their own kind of summary ending. And the reason we guess this is because it doesn't appear anywhere in the earliest manuscripts and it just kind of suddenly appears. And as you read Mark, you start to realize this makes a lot of sense by the way Mark ends. Because if verse 8 really is the ending of Mark, what's fascinating is Mark just suddenly stops. Like, if you've read the other Gospels, there's, there's no appearing to the disciples. There's no great commission. There, there's none of these famous stories that happen right after the resurrection. And oddly enough, Jesus never makes a physical appearance in Mark's gospel after his resurrection. It just kind of suddenly stops. It's a cliffhanger. And so what's fascinating is what's likely is that the scribes, as they're copying this, they're uncomfortable with it. And so they start to kind of fill in the story. And what's interesting is I think this is exactly what Mark intended. Because think about it. Mark describes the news to these women, or the news uh, when it comes to these women, that what they feel is they feel trembling, astonishment, and fear. Like all these mixed emotions. The, the words there actually mean trauma and ecstasy and phobia. Like th those are the Greek words there. It's, there's this sense of, I don't even know what to feel. There's just so much happening. And then the gospel ends with this last word, afraid. Afraid of what? Well, it's not afraid of danger. It's not like, you know, someone's coming after me. It's, it's the fear of decision. It's the fact that they've got to this point where they realize that this story, this news that Jesus is alive is going to change everything in my life, but not just my life, in the whole world. If Jesus really is alive, I'm afraid of what that actually might mean. It might change everything in my life. See, Mark's whole gospel has been a call to discipleship from the very beginning. And now it ends with this final call to discipleship by him just stopping. And he's implying, as a master storyteller, he's implying, now you finish the story. You finish the story. What are you going to do with the risen Jesus? What are you going to do in response to this one who's alive? See, the resurrection awaits a response. 
that awaits a response. In 1982, uh, scientists in northeastern China discovered ancient seeds in the bottom of a dry lake bed. And uh, they, they were seeds that were of the family of the lotus plant. And, and the lotus plant has these seeds that are about the size of a marble, and, and they're really resistant to weather and to other things. And so these seeds were, were particularly old-looking. And so they're like, we got to test these to find out how old these really are. So they sent them off to be tested. Turns out they were 1,200 years old. 1,200 years old, these seeds. And to give you some perspective... In China, they invented paper currency in the 12th century. These seeds are older than that. I mean, that, that's how old these seeds were. And so they took, uh, some of the researchers took four of these seeds that they found, and they created the, the perfect conditions in their lab for them to sprout. And sure enough, four days later, they sprouted. I mean, imagine 1,200 years these seeds are waiting waiting at the bottom of the lake, waiting for something to come along to bring life, waiting for a response, waiting, and then 1,200 years later, the conditions are right. They get the proper response, and they sprout, and they're the oldest seeds to ever sprout. 1,200 years, waiting for a response, a response that would unleash life, life. Jesus said this in John chapter 10, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. The good news of Easter is the good news of life, life in the face of death. He got up to give us life, life over the, sin, or over the death of sin, life over the death of shame, life over the death of guilt, life over the death of anxiety, life over the death of despair, life over the death of fear, life and life abundantly released in the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. But the resurrection requires a response. What am I going to do with the risen Jesus? What am I going to do? Have you ever had a decision so big in your life that you were afraid because you knew this would change everything. But you knew that if I made this decision, it would change it all for good. That's, that's what he's saying. He's inviting us into discipleship. He's inviting us into following Jesus. And what that looks like in the Bible is two things, repentance and faith. What that means is simply, I'm going to turn away from my old life. That's repentance. I'm going to turn to my new life in Christ, put my faith and trust in him, and I'm going to follow him. I'm going to surrender my life to him. And what Mark is inviting us into, what Jesus is inviting us into, is to say, I want to follow you. And in you, I'll have all abundant life, resurrection life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much. We are so grateful that you are a promise-keeping God. You are a God who said over and over to the disciples, I'm going to die, but on the third day I will rise. I'm going to die, but on the third day I will rise. I'm going to die, but on the third day I will rise. And nobody got it. Nobody listened. Not the men, not the women. No, nobody at your resurrection believed that this was coming. But you keep your promises. And so in the midst of death, in the midst of our sin, our shame, our guilt, all of our pain and suffering and misery, you speak life. And when you speak life, you keep your promise. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would 
encourage our hearts, challenge our hearts to come out of despair and into life, to believe anew who you are and what you've done for us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to invite our prayer team forward. as we.